Good morning. Hmm. I agree, the microphone's a little small. Good morning. Morning, thank you. Morning, Susie. Good to see you here. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Can you hear me? Oh, okay. Um, welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, February 8th, 2017. These were well into 2017. We have, um, we have the Chad Mini Neurology Mini Fellowship next week with Dr. Wallach, continuing our series of um, common and important conditions in child neurology. And following that, in two weeks, Dr. Richard Kripe from University of Rochester will be our Colin Stewart Visiting Professor, um, kicking off a day-long eating disorders conference, which then also continues into our annual Mount Washington Dartmouth Pediatric Conference, the 23rd to the 26th. I believe there's still room, uh, registration and rooms at the, at the resort potentially uh, for you to join us. We have also coming up in March the uh, Battle of the Badges at the now the Southern New Hampshire, the SNU Arena in Manchester, featuring the police against the fire brigade for uh, fundraising for Chad. So put that on your calendar Sunday the 19th in the afternoon. I think it's 3 p.m. So over the holiday break, some of you may have seen in the Valley News another uh, fundraising opportunity for Chad that was was generated. I love this when it's kids raising for kids. So um, this was November. Midway through her junior year at Sunapee Middle High School, Renee Brandon started working on her senior project and on her friends, neighbors, teachers, and classmates. By the, time, by the time Labor Day weekend rolled around, about 150 of them had signed up to run the Bold for Gold 5K road race, which she organized with guidance from her senior project mentor, her English teacher. Their entry fees would go to pediatric hematology oncology here at Chad, uh, where Brandon had started undergoing treatments for leukemia almost two years prior. On the race day itself, 100 more than the 150 showed up, bringing the total take to 7,000, a total that the Youth Development Organization Positive Tracks matched one for one, which they do for activities under the age of 23. Her goal, she says, my goal was 100 participants during a telephone interview. I hadn't thought about how much money I'd raised. I'd have been happy with 2,000. 7,000 was amazing, but she had already been amazing her teachers and classmates as well as herself since her diagnosis with ALL in December of 2014. So um, the kids that we take care of help us take care of more kids some days. So keep that in your back of your minds as you go through the day. So we start off our... Um, our exciting spring, and it's early for spring, our residents, our graduating residents are presenting their activities, their grand rounds starting today on February 8th, and, and um, Heather Genevieve Jones is kicking off the series today. A native of Ithaca, New York, um, Heather stayed close to home at Cornell University for her undergraduate degree, magna cum laude, and then came east for her doctor of medicine degree at the Warren Albert Medical School at Brown University, joining us an internship in 2014 after being inducted into the Gold Humanism Honor Society. She's the first of her class. She is much earlier, I think, than most years we start to see the residents presenting. And I think that speaks to what those of us who know Heather is, is her, uh, her, her sort of 
understated confidence and competence, and I think she will set a high bar for her classmates. So Heather, welcome. Can you hear me when I'm speaking? Okay, good morning, or as they say in Dutch, good morning. Um, Perhaps it's because I'm nervous this morning, but I feel like there are more people in the audience than at the recent presidential inauguration. <laughs> so, on a more serious note, my <laughs> my talk today is called How Some Dutch Babies Die, and it will be a discussion about neonatal palliative care and euthanasia in the Netherlands. Um, and I went on a recent rotation there. This is a picture of some heritage windmills at Kinderdijk. So my interest in the topic really came um, from what I will call the slippery slope of technology as well as quality of life concerns. And while I've seen many wonderful outcomes because of the continuously evolving um, technology in medicine, um, I do feel that it gives humans a more active role in the decision to potentially prolong life. So I think it's important that we continue to consider the ethical implications on a child's quality of life with these interventions. At the end of medical school, I took the Hippocratic Oath, uh, where I uh, swore I would first do no harm, which is the principle of non-maleficence. And during my training, I've been confronted on several occasions with ethical dilemmas in which I could not fully convince myself that the medical intervention was not causing harm or suffering to the patient, albeit at the interest of saving a life. So quality of life is obviously an extremely subjective and personal topic. However, my discomfort with the topic in general, in general led me to uh, gain further perspective. Uh, and at the beginning of my second year, I started to do a literature search and found that the Dutch approach to end-of-life care in neonates, particularly with their focus on quality of life, uh, intrigued me. So um, after contacting many of the neonatologists here, uh, Steve Ringer was able to put me in contact with one of his colleagues from Boston, who currently is an attending in the Netherlands. And I was able to create a custom neonatology um, palliative care rotation abroad this past November. So just for some background, who dies in Dutch NICUs? Um, and this data excludes babies that die in the delivery room. So 95% of babies that die, die from withholding or withdrawing a life-sustaining treatment. Um, of those babies, 60% of those are unstable babies with an inevitable death. So these are babies whose heart rates are dropping, their oxygen saturations are dropping. So no matter what we do, we are unable to save these babies. But 40% of these babies, um, care is withdrawn for quality of life reasons. And this is the population that I'm particularly interested in um, because I do feel that while there isn't great data to compare these numbers in the US and in the Netherlands, um, I suspect that it's higher. Um, again, it's hard to compare because as we learned last week in Kate's talk, it's highly variable in the US at what age babies are resuscitated here. And as I'll talk about later, um, it's more universal in the Netherlands. Um, but this, but this uh, population um, particularly interests me. So the outline of what I'm going to speak about today uh, is an overview of my rotation, uh, background on the Netherlands as a country, uh, Dutch opinions on end-of-life care, neonatal palliative care in the Netherlands, and neonatal euthanasia in the Netherlands. My rotation was at Erasmus MC Sophia NICU 
in Rotterdam, Netherlands. I spent one month there. And my rotation consisted of me going to sign out in the morning, which was a slightly more for formal process than it is here, where most of the NICU attendings would come every day. Um, and they were gracious enough to host that in English every day when I was there. And then we would round, and they would also host that in English for me as well, as well as conferences. So they were very nice the month that I was there. Um, and then I also was able to visit on a few occasions NICUs in Amsterdam, Leiden, and Groningen. This is Dr. Nick Kahneman. He is the attending that was able to coordinate all of the interviews that I performed and um, taught me how to use the train, helped me find a place to stay. He, he's the person who is responsible um, for making this rotation a success. So neonatology in the Netherlands is centralized in 10 level three NICUs. And the main difference um, compared to here uh, is that once a baby is stabilized, they're then transferred back to their home hospital. So only the sickest babies remain in the level three NICUs. And so there is a much higher turnover rate in these NICUs. Um, and similar to here, the decisions are made irrespective of financial status. The NICU that I worked in primarily in Rotterdam had 30 beds. All of those were critically ill newborns. And this is a picture of the entryway um, in the hospital where I worked daily. For those of you who are bad at geography, like me, this is the Netherlands. This is Rotterdam, where I spent most of my time. Um, and then this is Amsterdam here. And this is Groningen up here, which um, this will come into play later when I talk about the euthanasia protocol as it was started here. And just for um, an idea of distance, a train ride from Rotterdam to Groningen is about three and a half hours. Um, the size of the country is roughly two, si uh, two times the size of New Jersey. And then if you'll notice, Belgium and Germany um, are right um, at the borders, and this plays a role in terms of um, ethical decisions because the laws tend to differ between countries. And then just zoomed out, you can see that it's a very small country in Europe. So while I didn't perform any quantitative interviews while I was abroad, I did interview many people, including neonatologists, neonatology fellows, residents, nurse practitioners, NICU nurses, pediatric hospitalists, intensivists, ethicists, parents. So I was able to speak to a wide variety of people and get many opinions. Obviously, um, it was likely a somewhat biased um, um, point of view, just given the field that they work in, but it was still a very broad range of um, people that I spoke with. Um, and I included a picture here of a hot beverage because I could not speak with a person without having a coffee or a tea, and so I was highly caffeinated my entire trip there. <laughs> um, while I was there, I also gave two talks, um, one at Rotterdam, where I spent most of my time, and then the other in Leiden about neonatal um, palliative care as it is in the US. So that opened up a group discussion um, to compare and contrast the different practices. Some more background on the Netherlands. So the World Happiness Report is published by the UN. And in 2015, the Netherlands ranked number seven. Um, and the US down here was number 13. Uh, right now, I suspect the US would be <laughs> way down there. <laughs> 
And some of the reasons I tried to, to think of why it might be such a happy country, this is called uh, soup waffle. And it's hot dough that's pressed, with, filled with caramel. Um, one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. Um, this was some hot cocoa after ice skating um, on a speed skating rink. So again, um, a lot of fun. And they ride bikes everywhere. And it's a beautiful place. Um, and then I can't forget to mention Gouda. Um, or they, they pronounce it Chauda, but um, they make everything out of this cheese. And it's delicious. And it's a town in the Netherlands that I visited. So I think those are some of the reasons they may be quite happy. <laughs> uh, as for demographics, the population is just over 17 million people. The ethnicity is primarily Dutch, 79%. Um, and the language, as I said before, is uh, primarily Dutch. It's a monarchy. And generally, people are employed. Uh, religion. Um, this is an interesting uh, thing to consider about the Netherlands, because 42% of people in the Netherlands do not identify with religion, which I think is in stark contrast to the United States. Um, and then of those that do, 28% identify with Roman Catholic, 19% Protestant, and 5% Muslim. Uh, this is a picture of the flower market in Amsterdam. As for Dutch values, these are some of the most common um, traits that I found um, to describe the Dutch, and they would describe themselves the exact same way when I spoke with them. They're straightforward, timely, transparent, modest, and independent, which are great characteristics when you're interviewing people, because they were able to tell me everything, and they did not hold anything back. Um, and one of the ethicists actually said, uh, asked me if I'd walked around a Dutch neighborhood, and I said, yes, I have. And I was asking about the fact that the windows were always open. There were no blinds. And she said, actually, that's a really good analogy to Dutch culture. We're very transparent. We don't feel the need to close blinds. Um, you, what you see is what you get. So this is a picture of some open blinds. Dutch healthcare ranks number one in the Euro Health Consumer Index in 2014. And this is um, the Health Consumer Index compared 37 countries with 48 indicators. And the uh, healthcare system is actually what the Affordable Care Act was modeled after. So it's a mandatory um, healthcare or you risk a fine. And the price is fixed regardless of your age or health. Um, and it's private insurers, but the government is responsible for making those affordable and available. And just to compare, um, total health expenditures per capita. In 2014, the US spent between nine and $10,000 per person, uh, whereas the Netherlands spent between five and $6,000 per person. As far as parameters for resuscitation, um, this does differ from the US in that there is a pretty strict guideline as of right now. Parents have a choice to resuscitate a child if the gestational age is between 24 and 26 weeks. Um, at, before 24 weeks, parents cannot choose to resuscitate a child. The child will not be resuscitated. However, if the gestational age is uncertain, there will always be uh, resuscitation. This differs from Germany and Belgium, the surrounding countries. They, their laws are more similar to ours in that it's subjective and um, more at the discretion of the provider. And so um, I think this will um, cause some ethical dilemma, especially if you're living on the border of the Netherlands. Um, and then an important thing uh, that com 
continues to come up um, in all of these discussions and is that continuation of life support is conditional upon improvement. So just because a resuscitation occurs does not mean that that child will um, be continued on life support indefinitely. As for antenatal screening, in 2007, uh, structural ultrasounds at 20 weeks were started routinely in all pregnant women. Prior to that time, it was only for high-risk women, so women greater than 35 years of age or with high-risk uh, pregnancies. Um, and because of that, there was an increased number of elective terminations likely due to increased um, detection of congenital anomalies. Abortion laws are quite similar to ours. Uh, elective abortions occur until 21 weeks gestation and medical abortions are until 24 weeks gestation. I do suspect though that the availability of abortions is, are, they're more readily available than they are in some places in the United States. The next thing I'm going to be uh, talking about are some opinions of Dutch, um, of some of the people that I spoke with and interviewed and like I said, I, I couldn't give you the opinion of everyone in the country, certainly, and um, I couldn't give you the opinion of everyone that I even spoke with. So these are just some of the highlights and things that I found um, important. Um, so this is um, Dr. Erwin Rice. He was the chair of neonatology at Rotterdam Erasmus Hospital, where I worked. And he said, of course, patients, parents don't always agree with stopping treatment. That's when I try to involve them in the decision making. I explain what the child's life will be like if we continue the treatment. If they will suffer serious problems, physical and mental, we'll have to consider their future quality of life. The most important message is the child must not suffer. In speaking with the NICU nurses, this was more casual. I was sitting at the bedside with them, helping provide cares to the babies. Um, so these are just some things that I walked away with. Um, but they want to be involved with end-of-life discussions. And they feel that it's important to discuss future quality of life with the parents. And they also felt, which I think is a little bit different than here, that the decision to withdraw or withhold care is a medical decision. So why would we burden the parents? And often parents do not fully understand the situation and what it means for the future. I spoke with many ethicists. Some were not specific. Uh, to pediatrics, but they felt it was always important to involve parents in end-of-life discussions, and it was important to be honest and concrete about what you mean by medical futility, quality of life, and suffering. So this is a book, um, and translated from Dutch, it means The Unfinished Child, um, written by Brenda Van Osh. She is a mother of three, one of her children named Eva was born at um, 30 weeks gestation at 680 grams. And she's now a teenager who is blind, or sorry, deaf, has learning disabilities and um, autism with severe um, behavioral concerns and is actually institutionalized at this point. And so she wrote a book and she is featured in many interviews and magazines in the Netherlands for her bold opinions about the way um, her life, her family's life, and her child's life has turned out. Um, and so I, I've just um, put up some quotes from some of the articles that were translated into English from the book, because the book is in Dutch, and so I wasn't able to read all of it, just the things that were translated. Um, but they're pretty striking, and I think it's an opinion that is 
either not expressed freely in the U.S. or people may not feel this way. Um, but she says, would I rather she hadn't been saved at the time? I've often thought it would have been better, especially for her. And then she says, the consequence of such medical intervention is not only little miracles, but also Eva's. So, you know, I was sitting with her in her hometown um, having coffee and just chatting. And I thought it was very interesting because she was a very kind, loving person. Um, but she felt comfortable expressing these opinions. And while she still loved her, loves her daughter, and as she does her other children, she still feels from time to time that maybe this wasn't the best outcome uh, for her child and for her family. So I have a patient case, a baby boy born at 26 weeks, four days, and 960 grams, who is stable on a high-frequency oscillator. On day of life three, he had a grade three intraventricular hemorrhage with left midline shift and dilation of his ventricles. He was noted to have seizures clinically and on EEG, so he started on anti-epileptics, which did cause improvement in his seizures. And his MRI was notable for white matter lesions on the left. Uh, so um, neurosurgery was consulted and said a ventricular drain was indicated for hydrocephalus. So the ethical dilemma in this situation was that a pa the patient has a poor prognosis with almost certain serious motor, cognitive, and behavioral problems. Is it ethical to place a ventricular drain? So in this situation, they have a method to discuss these dilemmas, uh, and I will be discussing that now. So this is something called the Utrecht model, and Utrecht is a place in the Netherlands where this began, but it involves exploration, agreement on the ethical dilemma, and investigation of possible solutions, analysis, decision-making, and planning actions. And so this was studied to see how the team felt after uh, implementation and how involved the nurses and social workers and everyone felt um, with this specific model. So at Rotterdam, the hospital where I worked, they started these multidisciplinary disciplinary ethics meetings that were scheduled twice per month, and they were made to discuss cases with moral concerns. Anyone could bring a case forward, and if a case needed to be discussed sooner than the next uh, meeting, an ad hoc meeting could be scheduled. Um, but the team consists of two neonatologists, one being the treating neonatologist, a bedside NICU nurse, a psychologist, a case manager, and a religious figure, if applicable, and an ethicist from within the hospital but outside of the NICU um, to facilitate the meeting. Currently, parents do not yet attend these meetings. Um, and if there are any outside consultants that are needed there, welcome as well. So there is a standardized form that is used, and I, I'll be highlighting some parts of it. But this is just um, the introduction of the form where you um, highlight the dilemma at hand. So in this case, whether or not a ventricular drain should be placed. And I'll zoom in in just a second, but this is a section for the physician to answer questions, the nurse to answer questions, and the social worker. And so some of the pertinent questions on the physician section um, include the prognosis on the short term, uh, effects on both the patient and the family, and the prognosis on the long-term affects for both the patient and the family. For the nurse, they ask, to what extent will the parents be able to give all necessary care to their child, and what support is available to the parents? And then for the social worker, what are the psychosocial effects of the disease and treatments for child and family on the long-term? And then again, there's a section for the religious figure and other disciplines that were involved. 
And then this section is, is where um, essentially the decision or outcome um, of the ethical deliberation and why. And in this patient's case, the decision was made to withdraw care that it was not ethical to place the ventricular drain. So they have a tool um, called the quality of life prediction. Well, that's how I translated it. What they translated it as is the foreseeable future prospects. Um, and there are five categories, extent of communications, prospects for independence, dependence on medical care, degree of suffering, and life expectancy. So this is a chart. It's not a validated tool. Obviously, quality of life is extremely subjective, as I mentioned before. But it's a way that they can help make um, quality of life and future predictions slightly more concrete uh, than they may otherwise be able to do. So I'll zoom in in just a second. But you have those categories I just mentioned. And then there's a gradient of the different um, severities here that they would then choose. So for extent of communications, um, you have hearing, speech, vision, understanding, and relationships, and then you would rank that no communication all the way to completely normal. And then they would have an overall assessment based on all of the categories. <clears throat> the decision-making strategy used in the Netherlands with children also varies um, quite significantly from what we use in the United States. Parental views are considered, and they're not decisive. They don't use the same shared decision-making model that we do here. Um, parents are allowed time to come to the same decisions if possible, but it, not if the suffering of the child is prolonged. The well-being of the baby is always the physician's primary responsibility. Um, parents cannot force futile care, and the treating physician makes the final decision. If there is disagreement among team members or among the team and parents, second opinions are very common. Uh, generally, though, a decision is reached um, and in agreement with everyone, or the treating physician just makes a decision based on what is best for the child. And so I use this just to describe um, you know, autonomy in this country um, and in relation to neonates, parental autonomy um, is weighted very heavily. And in the Netherlands, non-maleficence seems to be weighted slightly more heavily or doing no harm to the patient. So just to summarize, um, withdrawing or withholding life-supporting treatment is considered a medical decision fully with regard to survival and at least partially with regard to quality of life. Um, and then just so that you know, the resources never play a role. So in talking about end-of-life decisions, medical decisions, um, which are medical decisions with the effect or probable effect that death is hastened. Um, this can include the withholding or withdrawing of life support, um, administering of medications to alleviate suffering, or deliberately ending life of a newborn with lethal drugs. And interestingly, they do have a process there. If families feel strongly about having the child die at home, as in um, some of the religions there, they will have ambulances take the baby on the life support to the home and withdraw them at home. Um, that was a very common practice, which I thought was very interesting. Withdrawal of care um, is quite similar to here. So in terms of artificial nutrition and hydration, it's um, ethically permissible and appropriate to withdraw these um, supports, including enteral uh, nasogastric feeds or uh, parenteral feeds, um, if appropriate palliative care is provided. Um, 
And that does not include um, oral feeds if the baby is feeding orally, unless that causes discomfort to the child um, by choking or aspirating. And then respiratory support, um, again, ethically permissible to withdraw that if um, appropriate palliative care is provided. In terms of palliation of suffering, um, again, very similar to how we do things here in the United States. So opiates can be titrated to effect. The so-called double effect um, comes into play such that the dose required of opiates may hasten death, but that can never be the intention. Um, it must be the dose required to relieve the pain and suffering. Um, and then sedation, so midazolam or propofol can be used to sedate the child, and palliative sedation can also be used if the life expectancy is less than two weeks. Typically, palliative care is embedded within the NICU team in the Netherlands. It's not an outside consult service, at least within NICUs. So these are some definitions because these are topics that are new and exclusive to the Netherlands. So DELN is the decision to deliberately end life of a neonate, and it's synonymous with euthanasia, the main difference being that euthanasia law applies to people who can actively consent for euthanasia of their own life, and neonates obviously can never do that. And the Groningen Protocol are the legal guidelines for DELN. So DELN, the actual definition is the use of a paralytic drug in a baby that is not currently paralyzed for another medical indication with the goal of ending life when palliative care is unsuccessful. Some background on euthanasia. Uh, the Netherlands was the first country to euthanize, uh, or legalize euthanasia in adults. And the 2002 euthanasia law applies to all legally competent persons of 12 years of age and older. So between ages 12 and 16, you need parental consent. Over 16, um, the child can decide. Um, and these cases um, legally do not be, need to be reported to the authorities as long as you follow the protocol, which is important. And I'll get back to that later when I talk about the neonatal law. So the Groningen Protocol, like I mentioned, is the law for, the, um, for euthanasia and neonates. And it started um, with a patient case. There was a baby born with epidermolysis bullosa, which for those of you who don't know, it's a very painful skin condition that's untreatable. Um, and so parents requested euthanasia for their child. The physicians agreed that the suffering was intolerable. Um, however, the physician would face potential murder charge, so he refused this request. This is Professor Edward Verhagen, and he is a doctor, a neonatologist, um, a PhD, and a lawyer. And if you, if you notice at the bottom of my slides, he is basically the reference for all of the papers um, that I cited. Before I went to the Netherlands and I read all my papers, I didn't realize he was the one who authored them all. And then I got to meet him um, and ate cookies and have coffee with him <laughs> for a few hours. And I show a picture of him because he's a very, very kind man. And he's often um, been, he's very controversial. Um, people have said that he has legalized infanticide um, given the nature of this policy. But um, that's, that's not his goal. His goal was to advocate for patients who are suffering and cannot advocate for themselves and to regulate a process that was not regulated in the past. So the protocol. Um, prior to 2005, about 15 to 20 cases of uh, euthanasia occurred annually, and about three of those cases were reported. And once the protocol was published in 2005, um, 
the, uh, I'll get to how many cases occurred after that, but the goal of regulation and transparency, um, th that, that was the goal. Um, and it applies to children from birth until one year of age. So the original protocol in 2005 had five major criteria that make euthanasia ethically permissible, and those include diagnosis and prognosis must be certain, hopeless and unbearable suffering must be present, confirming second opinion by an independent physician, both parents give informed consent, and procedure must be performed carefully in accordance with medical standards. And you'll notice that both parents must give informed consent. This is not something that the physician could ever decide independently of the parents choosing. The revised protocol, um, the only change was that hopeless and unbearable suffering must be present or anticipated. So the legal implications of the protocol, and this is where it differs significantly from the adult protocol, is that there is a mandatory reporting of the euthanasia to a multidisciplinary committee of experts. So it's not the local prosecutor's office, but it's actually a committee of experts of ethicists, doctors, and lawyers who are very comfortable with this protocol. Um, but the concern is, and the difficulty is, that it's a criminal offense to perform DELN, um, but a physician can claim impunity, meaning you could be charged with murder or manslaughter by doing this practice. Um, so it may lead to underreporting. And, and really, this is to protect the patient because um, babies cannot consent, whereas adults can consent. So just to really um, differentiate palliative care versus euthanasia, because it's a little bit um, unclear in some cases. So you have um, a continuation of a paralytic medication after withdrawal of respiratory support. Ideally, um, in this situation, you would have discontinued a paralytic medication and allowed time for it to wear off. But if it is still on, it is not considered um, DELN. It does not require reporting. So that does differ from the United States where the um, paralytic must be discontinued prior to withdrawal of care. Um, but that is the ideal situation in the Netherlands, but this would be permissible. And then a second case would be de novo administration of a paralytic medication to stop prolonged gasping during ventilator withdrawal or to end a protracted dying process. This would be considered DELN, so it must be reported. In the five years following the initiation of the protocol, euthanasia decreased from 15 cases to two cases. The 15 cases, most of them prior to the initiation of the protocol, were actually um, spina bifida cases. Um, and the two cases after the protocol um, were for epidermal lysis bullosa. Neither of those two physicians were prosecuted, and now there is um, a precedent for epidermal lysis bullosa. So going forward, people will feel comfortable, likely, with a patient with epidermal lysis bullosa. However, there have been no other medical diagnoses that have used DELN, so I think people will still feel very uncomfortable using this protocol. And the decreased use may be due to risk of prosecution, as I mentioned, or the um, routine antenatal screening also came into play around the same time, so there may be um, something to do with the increased abortion rate around that time for congenital anomalies. So as you can see, it did not lead to a widespread misuse as people um, were concerned it may have. 
And the Dutch reception of the protocol, again, I talked to likely a biased sample, um, but everyone seemed to feel like it was a good option, and they agreed that this um, protocol was good because it regulated a practice that likely occurs anyway in other places in the world. Um, and so they just continued on with their business. As for the future of the protocol, um, goals are to refine the quality indicators for neonatal end-of-life care, to reevaluate the role of parental suffering in physicians' end-of-life decision-making, um, to extend end-of-life care treatment of suffering in children aged 1 to 12. So currently there are no euthanasia laws for children ages 1 to 12. And implementation of neonatal palliative care guidelines in the NICU. Just um, because it does vary widely throughout Europe, in Belgium, euthanasia law is applicable to competent children of all ages. Obviously, this excludes neonates, but um, other children it does apply to. And in France, there are no pediatric euthanasia laws. However, in speaking with um, many of the Dutch neonatologists, the practice, the practice lar uh, does occur um, probably quite often. It's just not reported. So it, it's not regulated like it is in the Netherlands. So in summary, I think it's important to routinely discuss goals of care and quality of life. Um, in the Netherlands, continuation of life support is conditional on subsequent developments in diagnosis and prognosis. And DELN is an option, however, it is rarely used. Special thanks to everyone that I interviewed. Thank you. Thank you, Heather, for a fantastic presentation. Um, so um, I was really interested um, in the, um, the interprofessional team components of both the um, sort of the process of the ethical review process, as well as your interviews. I, I think what I heard you say is sort of different team members maybe had a little bit of a different perspective on, the, on shared decision-making mm -hmm. specifically. Um, and then the sort of structured reporting that each role has like things that mm -hmm. they report on. And I wondered um, if you could um, talk a little bit more about uh, whether there's literature um, about sort of different role perspectives. Um, and two is in that process, like everyone gets to report out, but are, is everyone's views really sort of um, embraced in the process or is are some sort of way yeah. differently? So actually the multidisciplinary meeting that I spoke of was public, there was the meeting itself is a published um, article about that process and how it worked and how everyone felt in the meeting. And so actually people felt that that meeting made it so that their opinion was heard more because the bedside nurse typically in the past would be at the bedside providing care and so wouldn't get to provide their opinion formally in a meeting like that. So it actually did allow people to, to be heard a little bit more and they felt more satisfied with their involvement in the care. And are, there, are their views actually different? Like, have people looked at differences in views? I don't know that they've looked at the differences, but they felt that they were heard, and they're at the bedside with the family more, so they had a little bit of a different opinion, or at least some more insight on the family's perspective. Thanks, Anna. It was really great. And an interesting insight into, you know, how culture actually does shape decision-making in a way that expect. I mean, most of the components are very similar to the way we would approach care here. I think, I think your slide with the uh, scales showing the difference in weighting autonomy versus uh, 
not malevolence. Malevolence is really the critical difference, and it's frankly sort of stunning, you know. I mean, <clears throat> not just in the United States, but I would think in, in general, uh, in the field of ethics, autonomy is probably has, in general, the highest value. And, and to some extent, you know, non-malevolence is a, is a ind indistinct term because every single part of medical care actually causes harm to patients, you know, whether it's sticking an IV in or drawing blood or anything like that, all of which are sort of acceptable under what we like to think of as the burden of care. So it's odd to me that that would take precedence. And then, of course, this rather stunning aggregation of meat. You know, I think in the United States, our thought is it's not the autonomy of the parents. It's looking to the parents for the best possible uh, surrogate decision maker for what the infant themselves would want. And uh, striking that they pretty much ignore that. Mm -hmm. Certainly in this country, we worried when the state was making decisions um, about how we treated disabled people versus the parents making them. I'm just wondering, in the healthcare structure, are the physicians uh, essentially state employees? Are they employed by a national health system? So they are independent. They don't need to worry about future expenses to the healthcare system of having a disabled child or any of those conflicts of interest. No, it's, so it's all private insurers, and so, um, and I think they're all working for for private academic hospitals or um, similar to the way it is here. So I have two questions. One sort of ties into what Sam just asked, which is you mentioned when, when you sort of go through your decision-making sheet that resources are not considered to be a big part of the decision, but I was wondering if you sort of heard any behind-the-scenes conversations about whether judici judicious use of sort of healthcare resources drives some of these decisions. Yeah. So I, that was something I asked frequently because I thought that someone would say, yeah, actually, but no, that, I didn't get that impression, actually. Um, and then my second question is, we were sort of chatting up here, so you know, we learned in Kate's talk last week, and I think we all know that there's a lot of uncertainty in sort of defining prognosis for a lot of the kids who are probably mm -hmm. seen in these NICUs, and I just was wondering if, if you got a chance to sort of talk to the neonatologists about how they handle that uncertainty when that's so much a part of this decision making. Yeah, so I think, and I, I should have said that that kind of meeting isn't always just one meeting. It may happen over the course of meetings where more information is found. I think it's a perspective, though, a cultural perspective, where we may say, we don't know, let's continue. They may lean more toward, we don't know, but it looks bad enough that we shouldn't continue. So it's more the way that they lean is different. Dr. Um, you talked a lot about evaluating their pain and like when pain was intolerable. How do they determine that? Do they have good scales or like like what was the they have an objective way of looking at that? The same way that we would here, not not anything different. Dr. Gray, in thinking about the baby with a hydrocephalus, you described their process, mm -hmm. which did not include the families. I'm wondering if you know how that process might be similar or different for an incompetent adult. 
than an analogous situation. In the Netherlands? I don't know. You know, I talked with some adult ethicists, but I didn't get into specific details, unfortunately. Well? I guess my comment is a little bit corollary to, to Sam's in terms of future quality of life and determining future quality of life. And having looked at it from the perspective of taking care of kids who have gotten beyond the neonatal period and have been, in, in our system, have been chosen to, to continue. My perspective of terrible quality of life seems to be totally different from the family's perspective at that yeah. point. And, and it, that may be a cultural thing, but what I perceive as a terrible quality of life, even giving parents permission not to have future interventions, ongoing interventions, most of, you know, I'm not sure I've ever, well, yeah, maybe I've had in a, a totally untenable situation a family say, yes, let's withdraw care, but, but most of the families are, are, are not at all in favor of not continuing interventions that were started, and it does not impact their their perception of quality of life for the child or for their family. Mm -hmm. did, did you perceive a different cultural issue than we deal with here? So I think the focus wasn't on, it was more on the patient. And so I think we often see that families do feel that their child has a good quality of life, but um, we aren't, in some cases we do ask the child, but we can't always ask the child, um, but their focus was on the child and how they perceive the child's quality of life to be either now or in the future, um, rather than how the family perceived the quality of life to be. Um, I think they mostly felt that the parents were having such, um, there are so many emotions at the time of these decisions that they wouldn't be able to make a good decision. I thought that was really fascinating, and, and I wanted to get into that question of the parents' experience of this. Particularly, you, know, you mentioned that if there is conflict, that the treating team would be able to overcome the uh, overrule the parents' wishes. <laughs> so that made me really curious about what the parents' experience is after that. Mm -hmm. You know, was there? Um, sort of a general acceptance of, uh, I'm glad you took the weight of that decision off my shoulders, or was there residual resentment because they wanted to make the decision for your kid? Did you get a feel for that? Yeah, so um, one of the ethicists I spoke with, her entire PhD thesis was on that topic, and so we talked about it at length and I read her thesis. But um, basically, parents felt as long as they were involved, throughout the whole decision-making process and knew the reasons why the decision was made um, and at least had some input whether or not they made the final decision. Um, they felt happy with or okay with the outcome. Um, and it's a different culture in terms of, I think, litigation culture. It's um, doctors there aren't so concerned that they're going to be sued for their decisions. Um, that was something that came up often when people asked, do doctors make their decisions in the U.S. because they feel like they're going to be sued if they don't do what the family wants? I thought that was interesting because I don't think about that a lot here, but it's something that people perceive in the U.S. The, 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 the book that you cited, the author that you met, what was, what was the reaction in the Netherlands to that book? Overall, it was well-received. I think there were people, and I met some people, who did not appreciate it or did not agree and felt that their experience with their disabled child was completely different and they could not understand her perspective or at least agree with her perspective. Um, but it wasn't... Um, 
mean, that may be a window into sort of the cultural difference mm -hmm. that, that Steve started mentioning before. Dr. Gloa. Um, as part of the spectrum of decision-making that you're talking about here, the legal status of abortion in the Netherlands seems really quite different from ours. Did you have any conversations about that or any reactions on the part of Dutch to our climate around abortion? So I was there in November right after the election. <laughs> and so there were a lot of reactions to what was going to happen here with abortion and knowing that it was already quite limited in certain places. Um, so for them, um, we didn't talk much about their specific abortion laws, um, but they did react strongly to ours and what ours may become and what, what, that, what effect that will have on, on women here. Well, that was terrific. Your idea, the work you did, your presentation, terrific. Thank you. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And I just hope you get a chance to extend this. I'd love to see you get some more quantitative data, increase the number of interviews, try and get some numbers behind it, and then maybe compare it to other cultures, not just the United States. For example, the, I, I'm familiar, of course, with the PICU world. The idea of withdrawal of care in the PICU world in Europe is, in South America is very much thought to be in the hands of the clinicians, not the parents. So there is, there is a lot of precedent for this in, in other pediatric mm -hmm. age groups. Um, I fear that some of the questions that we're hearing and some of the statements uh, are sort of taking our system and our values and trying to superimpose it on another country's system of values. And we say, well, it's very typically an American thing to say that we're right <laughs> and they're wrong. I mean, maybe they're completely right. So, um, piggybacking off that statement, and I think it's a human thing too, right? That, that we're all that we see our own perspective. But what do you think we can learn from from them, Heather? I mean, I, I, the tool in particular that you know Kim's reaction was that tool is kind of cool, yeah, because it says, "Will my child walk?" I mean, yeah. I find often that getting down to specifics yeah. are. Or something we don't do very well, and, and that, was, that seems really cool. Yeah, I think the thing that has come up time and time again with me in particular um, is that I think it's really hard, again, when parents are emotional in these situations, to, to give them some sort of a future idea of how their child may be, regardless of what they're going to choose. I think they should have some good idea of how their child may be. And so just continuing to have discussions about quality of life, about what their child will be like in a concrete way, um, is so continued discussions I think is the important thing and that anyone can raise those concerns about ethical dilemmas at any time. Hillary. So it's been a while since I've looked at this, but my understanding around some of the arguments for, you know, like age of resuscitation and what we do here is around disability rights. And I was wondering what you saw in terms of the intersection with um, with disability rights in general in the Netherlands. Yeah, I think at this time they just didn't feel that the data is good enough that they should be resuscitating younger than 24 weeks. And it's not any different between 24 and 26 
yet, so they didn't feel that they could make, draw the line any um, in between there. But I guess I, like my understanding is if what we do in general for these kids oh. is that we can't be like targeting people who are who have disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and so I mean, if we're talking about like can you walk, you know, some people would say that you're targeting somebody who has a, a disability and if you're taking that into account. So I'm just curious, like, what the larger sort of perception around disability rights. Right, and I so I think I'm. I don't want it to come across that they're um, judging people with disabilities, and it's not one isolated thing. It wouldn't be you can't walk, you know, we're going to withdraw support. It's it's if there are all of these things put together in one patient, and it's going to be very difficult for you to function or for people to to care for you. That's you know sort of where it is. So um, I mean, I was working in the children's hospital, and I saw many kids with disabilities when I was in all of the units. So I. I don't think that it, it's actually going on to that extent. I, I can't tell you any further than that, though. Steve, since you connected with this experience, I'll have the last question. But, yeah, I mean, um, very interesting questions that have been raised here. I mean, one being, is ethics universal, right? I mean, most, or most ethicists would contend, I think, that ethical principles are ethical principles. They're not, they shouldn't be dependent on culture. They may be impacted by resources and other things like that. So I don't think this is a question of people in the United States saying we're right. It's, it's really a question of our ethics in general. But it's fascinating to me that the number of cases of this um, euthanasia uh, have dropped so precipitously and leaving aside the possibility of unreported cases, it may simply be that it's having it is the most important thing, that it's actually almost never necessary. I mean, the analog in this country would be uh, efforts around uh, assisted suicide uh, for adult patients. Many patients say, no, I want to have that right. I, or I want to have the medications in case I choose to exercise it, but they don't actually exercise it. It's, it's having the right that's more important. Mm -hmm. So, um, because it sounds like almost never is it actually right. needed. So, we'll get you off the podium, but I'm sure some will still come down and want to continue this conversation. You said 9.15 was your end time, so we'll <laughs> <laughs> going to ask you and you can say yes. The photographer is holding your helmet, right? 